Our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The chief means for attaining wisdom and suitable gifts for the ministry are the Holy Scriptures and prayer. The chief means for attaining wisdom and suitable gifts for the ministry are the Holy Scriptures and prayer. So said John Newton, a slave trader turned pastor and author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. The Apostle Paul, I think, would agree, as we see from our text this morning. In these two verses, the Apostle lays out for us the importance of Scripture for the work of the ministry. He highlights its authority and its utility. So this morning, we'll be looking at the doctrines of the inspiration and the sufficiency of Scripture. In verse 14, Paul began to instruct Timothy regarding his duty uh, in contrast to the behavior of the false teachers. And, And he reminded Timothy that he had been taught the Scriptures of the Old Testament from a young age by his mother and his grandmother and then mentioned in the doctrines, mentored in the doctrines of Christ by the apostle himself. And this brings to his mind as he's writing this letter an admonition to this younger man regarding the importance of the scriptures for the work to which Timothy has been called. He's already told us that it is the knowledge of the scriptures which make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And now he will point out the authority of the scriptures and then their usefulness for Christian living and for ministry in particular. So let's begin with the authority of scripture. Look at verse 16 again with me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, when we looked at verse 15, uh, we said that Paul had in mind the Old Testament when he spoke of the Holy Scriptures. But here he speaks of all Scripture. And so the question arises, does he mean more than just the Old Testament at this point? And I believe that he does. First, the construction is different. He doesn't repeat the phrase Holy Scripture. Instead, he says all Scripture, which means every Scripture, not just those in the Old Testament. He uses the same word in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So this is clearly used inclusively to mean all sorts of creatures, every creature, not just those that were permissible to eat under the Mosaic Covenant. So I think he's using the word in a similar way here to mean every scripture, not just those of the Old Covenant. Second Timothy was one of the last letters to be written in the New Testament. Most of what we know as the New Testament had already been written when Paul penned these words. And so the apostles uh, says all scripture, and I believe he knew 
that he was writing Scripture. Peter wrote in his second letter uh, to the churches, and he says this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. I love that Peter admits there are some difficult things to understand in Paul's letters, which, he says, untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter mentions Paul's letters and people twisting them to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. So that indicates that Peter understood Paul's letters to be Scripture. So when Paul speaks of every or all Scripture, I take it to mean that he's including not only the Scriptures of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament Scriptures that were being written at the time. And he says that all Scripture, every Scripture, is given by inspiration. And one quick thing to notice in that phrase is the idea that Scripture is a gift that God has given us. Our confession in the very first paragraph says that it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church and dot, 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 down to the end of the paragraph, to commit the same wholly unto writing. So it pleased the Lord to reveal himself to men and to commit that revelation to writing to the scriptures and to preserve it for the use of his church down through the ages. The scriptures are a gift that God has given to us. The almighty, holy, transcendent God has revealed himself to us and given us that revelation in a book. That alone should move us to treasure the scriptures. But Paul's focus here is primarily on the idea of inspiration. That is the how How did God give us the scriptures? He gave them by inspiration. Now, this does not mean the same thing that we mean when we say that an artist was inspired when he painted that painting. The idea is not that the authors of scripture had some burst of creative energy when they wrote these things down. That's not what we mean when we say the scriptures were inspired. The phrase in our text, by inspiration of God, is a translation of one Greek word. It's a Greek word that is a compound of two different words, theos. Theos is the Greek word for God. So theology is the study of God. A theophany is an appearance of God. But that's compounded with the word pneuma which means wind or breath or sometimes translated as spirit. So the word here is the breath of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is spoken by God. The idea is that God has spoken. He has spoken through men, through human agents, but it is God that is speaking, not the apostle Paul. So when we say that The scriptures were inspired by God. We don't mean that the human authors were creative. 
that they were just godly men who kind of got caught up in some rapturous creative streak and wrote these things. Rather, we mean that God was speaking through them. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the prophets were inspired or that the apostles were inspired. He says scripture was inspired. It's the words of God that were breathed out by him and written down for us. The spirit working through the prophets and the apostles is the author of scripture. So the words, the grammar, the syntax of the original manuscripts, the Holy Spirit is the author, which brings up two very important points concerning our Bibles. First, we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is the author of all the scriptures. In his second letter, again, Peter tells us that he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of God speaking out of a cloud. Should we seek such a mountaintop experience? Should we seek to hear God audibly speak to us? Peter says no. Peter says we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the written word of God is to be preferred to some mountaintop experience. It is confirmed to be the word of God, It's not private, it's public, it's given to the church. No one can claim this is some word that God gave me that he didn't give everybody else. No, the scripture has been given to the church. And it came from God as he spoke through the prophets and the apostles. This is important for a number of reasons, and one of which is the tendency of modern uh, theological liberals uh, to be what they might call red-letter Christians. I don't know if you've heard that term or not. I know I have. Uh, I have family members who would say they are red-letter Christians, and that is they want to focus on the words of the human Christ uh, that are attributed to him in the Scriptures uh, over against or even in contrast with uh, the rest of Scripture. Now, obviously, there's no contradiction. Jesus doesn't say anything that contradicts any other place in the Scriptures, but they might argue so, and so they, they claim to be red-letter Christians. But we need to recognize that it's not just the words in red that are the words of God. It's all the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures are breathed out by the Spirit It's all equally the Word of God. And so I have this brilliant idea for a Holy Spirit study Bible. All the words of the Spirit in black. That way there's no confusion. It's all the Word of God. What Paul has penned here in 2 Timothy is every bit as much spoken by God as the red letters in the book of Matthew or the black letters in Psalms. This is the first thing that we must get straight in our own minds. The Scriptures are the words of God, breathed out by the Spirit of God. The second thing of importance here is that since all the Scriptures are the very words of God, as he spoke through human authors, but by his Spirit, then we should be careful regarding the use of Bible translations and the underlying issue of textual criticism and textual transmission. Now, this is a big subject a complicated issue. 
that we don't have time to get into deeply this morning, but it is important. Textual criticism is the science of thinking critically about the thousands of manuscripts that we have and trying to determine that they're all copies. We don't have any of the originals. And so looking at those manuscripts and trying to determine what did the original say because the copies might have errors in them. And so you compare them against each other and you try and get at the original uh, or what we call the autographs and what they said. Now, there are several schools of thought, a lot of misinformation and incorrect descriptions of those schools of thought. You'll hear terms like textus receptus, majority text, critical or eclectic text, or ecclesiastical text. These are the results of various schools of thought regarding textual criticism, looking at the manuscripts and trying to compile them together to come up with a Greek text that we think this is as close to the originals as we can get. I land somewhere, just so you know, somewhere in the textus receptus or ecclesiastical text camp. Those two are very closely related. I believe the other two positions are based on some faulty assumptions that are at work in the methods that are used to arrive at the critical text. Uh, but that's, if that's a discussion that's of interest to you, I'd be happy to do so over dinner sometime. But as I said, flowing out of that underlying issue of textual criticism, then comes the issue of translation. Which Bible are we reading? Textual criticism results in a text that then must be translated into English. And so there arises this question of translation method which comes down to a choice between two types of translations, a dynamic equivalence, which is a thought for thought, or a literal, which is a word for word. So there are also paraphrases. We won't go into that. Uh, But literal word for word translation is an attempt to put the Greek and the Hebrew uh, into English, staying as close to the original words as possible. Examples of literal translations would be the King James, the New King James. These are both based on the Textus Receptus, uh, the New American Standard based on the eclectic text. Uh, so different underlying textual basis, but same, the same uh, methodology in translation. Dynamic equivalence or thought-for-thought thought translation says we want to take the ideas in the text and translate those into English. Uh, examples would be the New International Version, the New Living Translation, or the New Revised Standard Version. The English Standard Version is somewhere in between those. It's based on the New Revised Standard, but updated and slightly modified to be a little more literal. All the dynamic equivalence translations are based on the eclectic text. And since we have seen that the very words of God are inspired, then if I want to read my Bible, I want to read something that's as close to the words God inspired as possible. So I want a literal translation. It might require a little more thinking on the reader's part to understand some things, but a dynamic equivalence translation is doing not only translation work, but interpretive work for you. And I would rather have the words of God as close as I can get them uh, in English. As John Calvin commented, we owe to the scriptures the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing belonging to man mixed with it. So the closer we can get to the actual words of God, the better, less of man's uh, errors mixed into it. The Holy Scriptures are the very words of God, and as such, they should be a precious treasure to the Christian. We should care 
about the Bible that we're reading, and we should treasure it as God's revelation to us and never take for granted the amazing gift that we have of being able to read the Scriptures in our own language. And we have this whole discussion of translations and multiple translations to choose from. But do you realize the Bible has been translated into less than half of the world's languages? Less than half. Now, the majority of the people in the world uh, can read the Bible in some language that they can read. But there are still almost 2 billion people in the world that do not have the scriptures translated into a language they can read. That's astonishing to me at this year, uh, 2,000 years after Christ, that we still have not translated the scriptures into every language. We have been blessed beyond measure to have so many choices in English as to what translation we will read. We should be thankful for how blessed we have been. And we should recognize the authority of scriptures. They are the very words of God communicated to us. The almighty God of the universe has spoken. We would do well to listen. The scriptures are God-breathed, and so they carry authority from God. And so Paul moves then from the inspiration and accompanying authority of Scripture to its usefulness. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Scripture is profitable because it is God's Word. It's not the opinion of men. It is the almighty God, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, speaking to us. There is no other text in all of human history that has God as its author. And so no other text has the authority that scripture has, and no other text is as profitable to us as the holy scriptures are. Calvin again says, The Lord, when he gave us the scriptures, did not intend either to gratify our curiosity or to encourage ostentation, or to give occasion for chatting and talking, but to do us good. And therefore, the right use of Scripture must always tend to what is profitable. So the Scriptures aren't here uh, just so we can be satisfied with every curiosity that we have. They're here to do us good. False teachers sometimes use and abuse the Scripture for their own ends. But here the Spirit tells us what the right use of the Scripture is. We know from verse 15 that the Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. But here we find that the Scriptures are useful, that their usefulness does not end where salvation begins, but rather they continue to be profitable for the life of the Christian, particularly in the work of the ministry. We'll see from these four terms uh, that the ministry is clearly in view here. But to jump ahead just a bit, uh, look at the beginning of verse 17. Verse 17, he says, that Scripture is profitable for these things that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The man of God. This is a common phrase in the Old Testament. It is used throughout the Old Testament, in fact, about 76 times, only used twice in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the phrase man of God is used as a reference to prophets who spoke God's word to God's people. Deuteronomy 33.1, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. 
1 Samuel 2, 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. 1 Kings 17, 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Samuel is called a man of God in 1 Samuel 9, 7. Elisha is called a man of God in 2 Kings 5, 8. Interestingly, David is called a man of God in Nehemiah 12, 24. The phrase man of God is used 76 times in the Old Testament, and David is the only person that we might not think of as a prophet who is called a man of God. But David was the sweet psalmist of Israel who penned the majority of the psalms. God was speaking through him. The early church prayed together in Acts 4, saying, Lord, you are God. You have made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and then they quote from Psalm chapter 2. So it's clear the phrase in the Old Testament is only used in reference to those who speak God's word to God's people. In the New Testament, this phrase is only used twice. Here in our text this morning, and also in 1 Timothy. Timothy is the only person in the New Testament who is referred to as a man of God. I would suggest to you that its use here in Paul's pastoral letters suggests a parallel between the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament preacher, both of whom are called to speak God's words to God's people. So when we read of the usefulness and the profitability of scriptures in verse 16, the context suggests that Paul specifically has in mind the work of pastoral ministry. Now, it's not limited to that, right? We are a nation of priests. The pastor, the elders speak God's words to God's people. Fathers and husbands have that same responsibility in the home. And every Christian has that responsibility when they are in contact with unbelievers in their lives. So this applies to all of us, but specifically to the work of the ministry. Furthermore, one of the terms that is employed here, that of correction, is something that Paul has specifically instructed Timothy to do. In response to the false teaching that was happening in Ephesus, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 25, that, Paul, that Timothy was in humility correcting those who are in opposition. It's the same word. So as he's instructing Timothy in his work as a pastor, he's using one of these same words. So there are four ways here in which Paul says that the scriptures are profitable. They are profitable, he says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Now, these four can be subdivided into two categories, which should be familiar to us from our discussion of verses 10 and 13. That is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The first two uses of Scripture for doctrine and reproof have to do with orthodoxy. Uh, These are a positive and a negative statement of the same work. Uh, They're both part of orthodoxy, which if you'll remember from our discussion of verses 10 through 13, orthodoxy means straight or true or correct doctrine. So scripture is profitable for doctrine. 
What is doctrine? Well, we discussed that at length in CLA this morning. Doctrine is a teaching or a set of beliefs that are uh, taught and instructed to others. It's not limited to the church. Brian used the example of the military. Military has doctrines. Politically, we have doctrines. If you remember from your history class, the Monroe Doctrine, we have political doctrines. So just because something is called a doctrine doesn't mean that it's Christian in nature or that it is found in the scriptures. But when we talk about what the scriptures teach, we talk about the doctrines of the faith. So a doctrine in this case is a summary of what the Bible teaches on any given subject. Paul calls it a pattern of sound words in chapter 1. Doctrines gather together all that Scripture teaches on any particular topic. They're summarized in brief form, as Brian said, in the creeds and confessions of the church. And these doctrines are founded in the Scriptures themselves. I'm I'm preaching through 2 Timothy, and, and you'll notice as I preach through it that I'm referring to other passages and other books of the Bible That's because 2 Timothy isn't the only place in the scriptures that talks about persecution, perseverance, false teachers, or these various topics. So we gather together what scripture says to help us understand the doctrines better. We're told in our text this morning that the scriptures are profitable for doctrine. Well, since the scriptures are God-breathed, what are we to believe The words of God. We're to believe what God has spoken to us. And so they are profitable for us. If I stand up here and teach you my opinion on some things, I may or may not get some things right. I may or may not tell you some helpful things. But if I teach you the Bible, if I teach you what Scripture says, it is sure to be profitable to you because it is God's words, not man's opinion. If God said it, then it is right and true and good and ought to be believed and obeyed. And so the scriptures are profitable. What they teach is for our good, as Calvin said. What they teach is authoritative. And so we can teach the scriptures and say, thus says the Lord. This isn't my opinion. This is what God said. The scriptures are profitable for us so that we might know what it is we are to believe. We're also told that they are profitable for reproof. If doctrine means to teach correct belief, then reproof is the flip side of that coin. It is to expose the error in false belief. So the scriptures are profitable for teaching the correct belief regarding God, man's salvation, sanctification, but they're also profitable for giving evidence or proof correcting false belief. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is translated as evidence in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So that's what the word means, evidence or proof of the truth. And in this context, it means proof of correct doctrine over against falsehood. A good example of this is found in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is correcting some false beliefs that are being taught in the church. The false teaching there was that Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in order to be Christians, that they had to become Israelites, Jewish, but they had to adopt a Jewish ethnicity in order to become Christians. And so Paul corrects that false belief. He reproves them, arguing against the false teachers. And he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. 
So the apostle quotes scripture and uses it to correct their false teaching. So that's an example of scripture being used profitably to reprove falsehood. This is related to the teaching of doctrine, but in the context of correcting that which is wrong. So those two uses of Scripture for which it is profitable have to do with what we believe, our doctrine. Scripture correct, teaches us correct doctrine. It corrects us when we have false doctrine. So that's orthodoxy. The next two have to do with what we do or what we practice. They're related to orthopraxy. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The first of these two terms is a positive. The first uh, set of terms, the two we had, doctrine and reproof, we had a, a positive and then a negative. Here we have a negative and then a positive having to do with orthopraxy. The term correction, again, is a compound Greek word that contains within it the word ortho, where we get orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And we know that that means to straighten. So correction means to set someone straight in their behavior. Now, all of us have probably had the experience of our parents or our grandparents setting us straight when we got out of line. This is corrective discipline. It's meant to put your feet back on the right path when you have erred. The scriptures are profitable for this. Brian spoke of catechisms this morning as a way of teaching scriptural doctrine. Well, the Baptist Catechism question six says, what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures? Answer, the Holy Scriptures chiefly contain what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requireth of man. The Scriptures not only tell us what to believe, they also tell us how to act, how to live as God's people. So when we are not acting rightly as God's people, the Scriptures are profitable because they can correct our behavior. We see this throughout Paul's letters to the churches as he corrects their erring practice. But let's look at an example from his own life just to show that even the apostle is not above the authority of scriptures to correct our behavior. In Acts chapter 23, Paul is taken before the Sanhedrin, the body of Jewish elders who govern the affairs of the Jewish people. And we read in chapter 23, verse 1, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And then the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul is quoting there from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So Paul's own behavior was in error and the scriptures correct his behavior. By calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, Paul had violated this scriptural principle not to curse a ruler. Some of us might need to be corrected by that same passage and how we have spoken of current or past elected officials. This doesn't mean that we have to agree with them, right? I don't think Paul agreed with the high priest. I think his criticism was still valid. 
But there's a certain respect that goes with the office. That person has been put into position of authority by God, and that position is to be respected. Again, in his second letter, Peter writes of the unjust who, he says, walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. God's people are to behave differently. We're free to express disagreement, to call evil what it is, to call government officials to repent and believe. But we are not to curse them or to speak evil of them because the office is due respect. For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So scripture corrects our behavior, setting us straight when we misstep. That's the negative or corrective aspect of how Scripture is profitable for our practice, our orthopraxy, but it's also positively profitable, informative instruction. Scripture is profitable for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Instruction differs from correction. Correction was corrective discipline. Instruction is formative discipline. This is the same word that we see used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training in the instruction of righteousness. The idea is formative instruction. So just as parents are to instruct their children... And the scriptures instruct all of us as Christians in how we are to behave as God's people. One of the key verses in this letter of 2 Timothy is chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul tells Timothy, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. We've talked about that a lot. Hold fast to that pattern of sound words. This is formative instruction. Before Timothy makes a mistake, before he drifts into error, Paul is giving him formative instruction, telling him what to do. Cling to the pattern of sound words so that you won't fall into error. Being the very word of God, the one who created us and who will judge all things, if there is a right way to live, we will surely find it in the scriptures. Again, our confession in chapter 1, verse, paragraph 6 says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. All things necessary, not only for salvation, but for how we live our lives as God's people. All things are found in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are profitable for this. So those are the positive and negative aspects of orthodoxy and orthopraxy for which the Scripture is profitable. But then Paul says in verse 17 that it is profitable for these things that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we've already said that by man of God here in reference to Timothy, he's using this Old Testament term. He's speaking of those who speak God's words to God's people. So it particularly applies to elders and pastors, but also to husbands and fathers and to all believers in various circumstances. And he says that the scripture is profitable for these things so that we may be complete, or as the King James says, perfect, 
That doesn't mean sinless, but it means finished, fully formed, fully trained, completely qualified and ready for the work. The scriptures do their work in us if we have been diligent to present ourselves as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, then we are completely qualified, fully formed to do the work for which God has called us. And not only do the scriptures complete the man, but they thoroughly equip him as well. Paul says that, they, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is a picture taken from military terms here. It means that he has all the weapons and gear that a soldier would need for a long campaign. Whether that is pastoring a church or raising children, discipleship is a long campaign, and we must be thoroughly equipped. Often you'll hear people express the idea that a pastor can't help someone who's dealing with a particular sin unless the pastor has himself experienced that same sin or has some specialized training in it. But the Spirit says that it is the Scriptures that are profitable and fully equip the pastor for his work. Now, that doesn't mean that Brian or Paul or myself can tell you which career path to choose or what to eat if you're on a diet and trying to lose weight. The scriptures are profitable for orthodoxy and orthopraxy, for what we believe and how we live holy lives as God's people. They aren't designed as a weight loss guide. They're not a a medical textbook or a career guide. The Bible doesn't help us diagnose illness. You might need to see a doctor. The elders can pray for you. We can't diagnose or prescribe you medication. The scripture doesn't equip us for that, but it equips us for orthodoxy and orthopraxy, for how we live as believers, which Paul here calls every good work. It's the work of making disciples. It's the work of training and instructing one another in righteousness the work of straightening out beliefs and practices of the church so that we may all grow up into maturity in Christ, sanctified in the word of truth and fully pleasing to God. Apart from the scriptures, all anyone has is their own opinion, which is fallible and incomplete based on the wisdom of man. This foolishness next to the riches of the truth of the scripture that God has given us. So if a pastor, if a preacher is not about the scripture, if they stand up and tell you some nice stories, they make you laugh, but they're not teaching you the scripture, they're not being profitable to you. The elder apostle here is giving this younger Timothy the key to successful gospel ministry, successful disciple making. Study the word, preach the word, shepherd with the word, counsel with the word, teach the doctrine with the word, reprove falsehood with the word, correct false practice with the word, instruct the congregation in righteous living with the word. So as your elders, Brian and Paul and I are committed to the scriptures as the primary source of pastoral wisdom and as a primary tool for discipleship. That's why everything that we do in the life of this congregation, we try to center it around the scriptures. The same should be true of husbands and fathers in the home as they shepherd their families. The same should be true of all of us. If we would serve Christ well and be equipped to share the gospel 
with those that we come in contact with in the world. We are called to be people of the book. And it's not only sufficient, it is profitable for salvation, for life, and for godliness. Charles Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. My prayer is that this may be said of us as well, that the members of Antioch Reformed Baptist Church are so full of the word of God that you can't talk to them without having the Bible quoted to you. What a testimony that would be of our love for God if we so treasured his word that we saturated ourselves with it, that it just flowed out of us in every conversation that we had. Oh, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And the scriptures are authoritative and they are profitable for that. Let's pray.